we talked about this at dinner. It, it, when he and I sat down together for the first time, I had one request and he had one request. And my request was, um, I don't want to make a film about Parkinson's. And his request was no violins. And yet I saw violins. I don't know if you guys picked that up in the credits. No, and I was at, at the mixing stage. Did he mean literally no violins or was he like, you know, but I, but I think um, he didn't want to be pitied. Um, he doesn't, he refuses to be pitied. And I've heard him say that pity is a benign form of abuse. Hello, and welcome back to The Director's Cut, brought to you by the Directors Guild of America. In this episode, director Davis Guggenheim chronicles the triumphs and travails of actor Michael J. Fox in Still, a Michael J. Fox movie. Screened as part of the DGA's documentary series, the film follows the actor, diagnosed with Parkinson's disease at the age of 29, as his public life is unspooled alongside his never-before-seen private journey. Guggenheim's other directorial credits include the documentary features He Named Me Malala and the Academy Award-winning An Inconvenient Truth, as well as episodes of the series Deadwood, 24, and NYPD Blue. He was nominated for the DGA Award for Outstanding Directorial Achievement in Documentary for his 2011 film Waiting for Superman. Following the documentary series screening of the film at the DGA Theater in Los Angeles, Guggenheim spoke with director Andy Timoner about the film. Listen on for their conversation. So, first of all, congratulations on such a dynamic and incredibly uplifting film. Thank you. About what could have been, yeah. Thank you. Um, I absolutely loved it. I especially loved uh, the use of all of his work. Um, and the recreations and just how you fluidly did that to tell the story. And it was just like taking things out of context that, you know, um, really reminded us and even educated us about his career. But at the same time, it all kind of, to me, it really pays off when he is hiding his condition and we're by now we're so used to being in his work and it's, he's on spin city and we're looking for, when is it going to, when is everybody going to catch on to this? Um, tell me how you came to find that style. Is that something you thought of from the beginning or? I didn't think of it at all. And, and the editor, I worked with Michael Hart, who um, uh, edited Three Identical Strangers. Um, he, um, he kept at, we would have a battle. There, when, you know this, when you make documentaries, there are these parts of the story that you don't know how to portray because there's no archival for it. And so I would storyboard those scenes as scripted, as sort of um, what you would call reenactments and put those in. And then he would throw them out and put in uh, shots from Michael in a movie. So when he's meeting Tracy, for instance, uh, and he's dating her, he put in that scene from Bright Lights, Big City, um, uh, where they're walking down the street. They're actually dating in real life but they're dating in the movie and it just, and the more he did it, the more I liked it. And, but then when I did, I put more storyboards in and then it just went back and forth. And to the point where towards the end, it was just a, a mashup of 
a collage more. Yeah. It is, but it, it it's really seamless the way it's told and it's so dynamic. And uh, tell us about the beginning. So that first scene that is so beautifully shot um, in Florida. Yeah. Um, was that something that came out of the interview and it all started with this pinky and then you decided that you were going to do that and cast someone who's like a body double and found one shot of Michael in bed or like, how did this, like, <laughs> I was like, how did he do this? But it's really beautiful. Well, it starts with his books. Michael's written four books, but two of them uh, we use throughout and his, he reads them in the book on tape and the book on tape is extraordinary. And so he's, he's actually, he's actually a very good storyteller and he reads them so well. So we use that as narration. And, and, and so we started with just an audio cut of his life. Mm. So no picture, just putting, putting that together and, and, and tracking that. And, and then the hotel room we built in, um, in Vancouver and we, and we shot, we, we had had a full cut of the movie. I'm not telling this very well, but we had a, a full cut of the movie with all the verite scenes and, um, and, uh, and, and all the movies that he's in cut into it with storyboards tight, like a 90 minute, very close to this. And then we shot the scripted. So by the time we shot the scripted stuff, we knew exactly how it would be used. So then we built the interior of the hotel room on a stage and, and shot it that way. And Richard Rosser is here, the first AD who, there you are. Um, you're DGA, right? Yeah. All right, you have to be DGA to be here. Okay. Um, uh, tell me about the the double entendre, the title. You know, it's really, where, where did that come to you? It was really something, when I first heard the title and, and I was invited to a function you were having at South by Southwest, I thought, what a, what a name for this movie. Like what a title, you know, and, and now just that he's here 40 years later, I thought, Oh, well that must be yeah. what it is. You don't live that long with Parkinson's, but yeah, it, it really is something that um, is quite poignant. It sort of came at the very end. I had many different titles in my brain and I, and I really felt like I could not find a good title. Mm. Um, Cause I felt still was a very passive title. It doesn't, I like titles that sort of like you have to, or a puzzle you have to figure out. Um, but I like it now. It is like a puzzle though. I like said, it's like the opposite of Parkinson's, right? It's like being still, but at the same time, here he is finally able to be present and still in his life in a way he never was before. And he was always running. I mean, that's a theme in the movie. It's theme and running, running, running. And in many ways he's running towards something. He's running towards Hollywood and then he's running away from Parkinson's. And, um, and so that's a big theme in the movie. And so somehow the opposite of that. Yeah, surfaced. I don't. I don't know if when you make your films, but like sometimes a word will just surface. It comes out. Yeah, it comes out. And, and very after we'd lock picture, I picked the title. But but, it, but he says it on camera, or you say it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Right there. But so it was the in top. there, and I knew this. Yeah. I was trying to put a word with still, and I couldn't. You know. I mean, he says he won't be here by eighty, but because he's sixty-one, but right. he's here. I mean, he's still here, and he seems relatively yeah. all right. Yeah. And I, you managed to eke out of him because he's such an optimist that he's in pain. Yeah. And I saw a movie recently about a man who took his life because of the pain yeah. he felt. He described the pain of Parkinson's like so painful. Um, did you get a sense of that being with him that he was struggling with pain, or was he just, uh, you know? I think part of his his DNA is to be an optimist, sort of in his books, and. Um, 
the other side of being an optimist is sort of like <laughs> this thing you're kind of avoiding, you know? And, uh, uh, I don't think he wants to, we talked about this at dinner it, you, when he and I sat down together for the first time, I had one request and he had one request. And my request was, um, I don't want to make a film about Parkinson's. And his request was no violins. And yet I saw violins. I don't know if you guys picked that up in the credits. No. And I was at, at the mixing stage going, uh, you know, <laughs> signing off and going, Oh, did he mean literally no violins or was he like, you know, but I, but I think, um, he didn't want to be pitied. Um, he doesn't, he refuses to be pitied. And I've heard him say that pity is a benign form of abuse, which I think is very powerful. So he doesn't, he wants to project this optimism to, 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 to a fault. I think he would agree, but it's interesting how you're a filmmaker and we're editing and editing, editing and very close to finishing. We had like one day of shooting left and we had a tight, good, finished film, and I just felt like there was something missing. And I, I know you feel this way with this with your films. Is like something just. And Jay Cassidy's here, editor we've worked with, and sometimes you always say like, the film always tells you what it what it needs, and there was something about him that was. You weren't getting. You weren't getting through. There was something that needed to break. You need to break through. And so we, I did that last interview mm. um, and that last therapy session where he's in pain. And, um, and uh, it sort of, the film worked without it, but then it, it was something missing in it. And I don't want to say what it is, but like. Vulner, a certain vulnerability perhaps. Yeah. And, and a certain, certain acceptance on his part, maybe. Um, and, and I just love what he says. Like, why didn't you tell me about your pain? He's like, well, it didn't come up. <laughs> yeah and that just says everything about about who he is. i was about to ask you like is that part of your process like you edit the film and you save a shoot day or two for the end to don't get you? don't you i do it's a great thing to do i recommend it um but i didn't know i was going to ask you like where how many sittings did you have with him to make this and and how was it to break through because you've made films about so many icons you know from edge to malala to al gore uh to Bill Gates and uh, every one of them comes with their own set of challenges. I'm sure in terms of a person who's answered every question in their lives a million times, you know what I mean? And they're kind of like, what else do you have for me? And then also kind of just getting them to be vulnerable and getting inside. What were your challenges with him and, and how did you approach this one and, and sort of just talk about that? If you There's like seven questions in there. Andy. Yeah. <laughs> I want to hear you talk for 15 minutes straight. I can't no even remember one of them. Um, I'm, I'm a little. How much is Michael J. Fox like Edge? No. <laughs> I, you know, I, I, when you say those names, I'm like, I never. It was You're never, like, did I make those movies? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. But I, it, it was never planned that way. I don't know why. That you happened. have made a lot of movies about some really incredible visionaries and people that are, you know, in the spotlight. And I have two. And it, and it, it, it for me, it's always very challenging to yeah. get yeah. to. Everyone comes with their own challenges. And I guess I'm asking in this case. What were yours with, you know, and, and what from your toolbox of past experience? I didn't mean to throw you a doozy. I thought we No, 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 no. It's more like I'm confused because I'm just, conf I'm not resistant. <laughs> I, I think, uh, I think every film has their challenge. I think in a film for this film, it was, oh, the expect, the expectation that the audience has of like, oh, this is going to be one of those bio films about a movie star. And I know what that, I know what that's going to be. And the other one was, oh, this is a film. I mean, 
Larry, you just said like, you know, should we bring our, our tissue? Right. And it's like, um, you think, Oh, this is a Parkinson's film. This is a film where it's like about a heroic guy who we're going to feel bad for and, and cheer on. And I think in both those cases, we tried early on to subvert those expectations. And so the challenge was like, no, strip all those things away, tell a story about a guy. And I think that's things that, those are things I'm sure you've tried to do. I try to do. It's really hard because, and it's harder with famous people because if it's someone you've never met, they're an open book and, um, and you're open to really being new to this person and, and with someone a famous person, you think you know them and you have all this baggage that you have sort of have to unpack. Well, I, I revealed to you at dinner that, you know, I cried when family ties went off the air because I thought it was the end of my childhood. And, um, and you were, you're a you were saying, Republican? You're- yeah, right. <laughs> yes. My mom's here and she would really, yeah, I, she would basically excommunicate me if I was a Republican. So I'm not allowed to be a Republican. Not that I would be, but, um, so no, but I just, I just, it was like what we watched. It was what we did as a family, but you really didn't, you weren't like a Michael J. Fox fan per se, yeah. but yeah. you had this idea to make this film. So it was not a film about a guy. It was a film about a guy who was taken out unexpectedly. I mean, who gets Parkinson's at such a young age? It's super rare. No, he didn't set out to be a hero. He didn't set out to build this huge foundation to change the way meta that people do research. He didn't, he was kind of a movie star, pretty happy being wealthy and famous with his feathers. Right. And it's just weird how life called him in this. And, and, and I liked how life called him and he did everything he could not to answer. I found that really interesting. So I, I think, I think, I think the big idea is how do you strip, how do you subvert the expectation? How do you really figure out what the core of this, who this person is, which is usually not what people present as themselves or are understood as by people. How do you feel from, from going through the experience of the film that having the Parkinson's for that long actually has changed him? You know, do you feel like you would have sat with and, and, and had as good a conversation with, Michael J. Fox in, in his twenties or thirties. I mean, he seemed like a nice enough guy. He seemed like generally a pretty polite Canadian, you know? Um, I think ti- but I mean, it, timing is everything, right? I think this is the moment to tell the story mm-hmm. by, by not by design, but by luck. I think the, the year we shot the film, he had, he, he broke his wrist. He broke his other wrist. He broke his shoulder. He broke his arm. He fell on his face. Um, he was in the hospital for most of the year. We, we cancel shoots cause he's in the, and when you're on Parkinson's medicine, it's so, it's so delicate and fragile that you put them in the, put someone in the emergency room and, and the emergency room doesn't care what medicines you're on. They put you on new medicine and it's, and where, whereas you and I would be in an emergency room for three days, he's in the emergency room for a month and he comes out just a mess because his whole system is off out of whack. It was a terrible year. And I don't think we could, I don't think, I think if we made it now, it would be a different movie. And I'm not sure we, I'm not sure we could have made the movie. Is he up? Is, is he in a better place now? He's in a better place, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a chronic disease. 
that that's will decline. Yeah. It, 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 as he says, the doctor says, it, you know, Parkinson's, you don't, you don't win this game, you know? No, but how do you hold it off for 40 years? I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, partially, I think it's probably from the, the fact that he was so young yeah, and yeah, virile, yeah. but, um, you know, I, I found myself when he mentions fame and the mirage of it and yeah. how, yeah. you know, ridiculous it is at the same time, it bought him the ability to probably have the best treatment and, you know, yeah. the dopamine that he's taking on a regular basis. Did you get into that at all with him? Like, did you try it yourself or? <laughs> just, just, just a little. Um, <laughs> no. Um, well, the, the one, the one thing I said is I didn't want to make a Parkinson's movie. And part of that was that, that in the middle of the pandemic, I was kind of low and depressed mildly and lost. And what his story sort of lifted me up and, I remember vividly that that one interview we do with him. We do it six times over a long period of time. But I remember vividly. I live in LA. He's in New York. I remember finishing a long day of interviewing him and walking to my hotel. It was like two miles. It's like oh, it's a nice day. I'll just walk home and clear my head. And I remember just going, "This guy's got a chronic disease, and it's relentless and horrible. But why do I want what he has?" And I and I want to I want to tie that to your movie. Uh, for those of you who haven't seen Last Flight Home, Andy made this incredible movie, incredible. Uh, Andy's mother and brother are here, right? Yeah. Um, if you haven't seen it, it's about a family that comes to terms with. How, how, you describe your movie. Oh come on! <laughs> well, you started it. Well, <laughs> you say I'm gonna, I'm gonna, because I'm going to say it wrong, but just give me the okay, and then I can. It's embellish. it's about my our father, my father, my mom's husband, and uh, he just he just has reached a point where he can't go on, and uh, he makes the choice to die because that is an option in California, which we didn't even know about. My brother actually found that, but he was pleading with us to end his life, and um, it was during the pandemic, um, and he was hospitalized. We couldn't get to him, and he just. Was it was clear that he was going to have to go to a facility, and uh, and and that was when he was just like, "I've had it." He lived his life forty years um, as a hemiplegic, and he just had been the most positive, wonderful, tender, kind, and funny person that we any of us knew. And uh, it was time to go, and so he chose this option, and there was a fifteen day waiting period, and uh, and I just panicked and set up cameras, and so it's really about our family during those few weeks of Dad's life. And it sounds, end. it sounds heavy and dark and there are moments of that, but it is really a moment of, of incredible beauty and love and a family coming together. And it's like, it's, it's, it's pure poetry and it's a beauty. I encourage everyone here to see it. It's it, it, and my favorite film of last year. So. Oh gosh, yeah, Davis. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, so it's, so you were saying it in re, back to your movie. Back to me. Please. <laughs> um, so you were saying that 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 feeling of just the, what what it was, the depth that he had gained from his struggle and from the way his family, I guess you're saying, rallied around him. Seems like he has a wonderful family. He's a wonderful and family. that maybe but why you thought of Last Flight Home. Yeah. And also, I think it, it kind of an acceptance. My father died of pancreatic cancer and he just refused to accept that he was dying. Um, the day he died, it was 
emaciated. He, he'd lot, you know, and he asked the doctor, when can I start chemotherapy? And everyone knew he was about hours away of dying from it. He just, he just would not accept it. And I think I just didn't make, I didn't make this connection to just this moment because of your film, but like, I think there's an acceptance that, mm. that is beautiful, that I find beautiful in, in Michael. Um, uh, the disease, he wakes up in the morning and is reminded that, that he's mortal because of how his body is, is not performing or whatever. And, and I think that's given him a, something beautiful, even though it's, it's, it's truly horrible. It's incredible how resilient we are as human beings and how we adapt. You know, I wonder if your father hadn't had the length of time, because as you said, Michael didn't accept it right away, you know, and he ran from it for years. Yeah, I think um, so. If we made the film 10 years ago, it would not be this. Mm -hmm. And that ex the gift of that acceptance for the film is that he's completely an open book. There was nothing that we couldn't put in. There's no question we could, couldn't ask. You just don't get that. Mm -hmm. You just don't. You net, I mean, you know this. There's always something someone's not going to tell you. Did you at any point want to interview his kids and wife? It was by, by design not to interview anybody. In fact, I was not going to shoot that one interview. Um, and then I was shooting something else. And the great Claire Popkin, the cinematographer behind, back there, who shot some of the film, who shot Free Solo, if you haven't seen Free Solo. Uh, oh. Um, um, Hide, we're all going to hire you. But this one lens with this one angle, and, I, and you think you know everything when you've been shooting for 30 years, but I didn't know this. And it was like one lens. What is it, Claire? Is a 40? Yeah. So it's at a certain angle, and, and it could I mean it was like this, and it was like me and Michael, like this. And the lens is this. And so I, can, I can't see your nose, but I can see your eyes. Mm -hmm. But, and I, we did this on a commercial. And I said, well, that'd be weird. We'll just do this. And I go, you know, can, you, can you do a different lens? No. Can it be further away? No, it's just this. And, and so I did it. And we did one interview. And he and I are just looking in each other's eyes. And it looks like he's looking in the lens by, by some, what is it? It's a geography. It's, it, it, Anyway. That's how I try to do it too. Right, just like people like straight into the lens as much as possible, which means you, they don't, they can only see a little bit of you through the hardware. Right. So the, yeah. So anyway, I said well, let's try that. So the point was, I I didn't want talking heads. I didn't want other voices. And so that one interview became uh, um, was just magical. It was really great. And he, he, I just didn't realize how great he would be. And then following him in the lobby, when we were walking out, you told me that that first track, that right. score underneath was so difficult because it's setting the tone for the movie. Right. Was that one of many walks you took where he, you know, then he falls because he's saying hi to someone on the street. I mean, it's really a poignant way to begin the film. Um, and his reaction says so much about his character yeah, yeah, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like yeah. you really turned my head when you knocked me down. You knocked, knocked me off my feet. Yeah. yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. So we, we, um, John Powell, the a composer who, who's never done a documentary before did the music for this. And, um, and he thought, <laughs> you say, well, when you say like, when you make documentaries, you're like, Oh, you know, come on, let's make a documentary. It's easy. And they're like, Oh, it's just a documentary. It's not going to be, but it's, it, he had a, he had the hardest. It's not time. for the faint of he heart. Would say, yeah. He would say it's hard. The tone was very hard to figure out because in that way of like, 
not pitying him, not making him this champion, not making him oh the noble creature that's um, and not and not make I mean it's it not be making fun of him you know so it, it, so we tried and tried and tried and tried and tried until we got it. I think, um, I don't know. I, I think that it, pro I, I know that the film has impacted me personally. I know that, um, I've thought about it. And to me, that's a sign of a good film is when it really impacts and it, it stays with you. Um, how has it come to be for you? You've made so many films, you've been making films for 30 years and you also dabbled a lot, not dabble you for 10 years you've shot a lot of television. So in a lot of ways you were making documentaries, stopping making television, coming back to documentaries. And now this kind of brings that all together. But, um, I, I don't know that you've ever told a story like this. And I, I, I'm not, I'm not an expert, a PhD in your work, but I have seen quite a few of your films. And I don't think I, anything like this. I want to find a PhD. I'm going for it. <laughs> I'm applying for the job. Um, it is very different. And, uh, I was thinking, for a long time, I had two secret lives that I kept. It's like two families I kept from each other. And, you know, when we were working, working on Waiting for Superman, we would I would stop and go direct a pilot because I had three kids in school. And, and, and you know, and the documentaries didn't pay, you know. And so I'd be directing a television pilot um, and they didn't. I always thought I'd make documentaries, but they didn't know about it or care about it. And you make documentaries, and like you're going to TV. What the fuck is that? And, and 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 now, it's so wonderful that nonfiction, where those boundaries are, are kind of irrelevant. Uh, and nonfiction has changed so much in such a wonderful way. The form has just done incredible things. And uh, for me, it was like bringing those two worlds together. A lot of my experience directing television. Uh, and, you know, helped me make this film as much as the things I've learned from nonfiction. And what do you carry with you? Like, what, what, what do you think about what keeps popping into your head for the movie? I always have like a scene from my films or a moment or moments, you know, that are kind of like a line of dialogue that pops into your head all the time. You know, what do you carry? Just, you know, I thought I was, I, I I think the film, I, you don't think that the film is going to change you. And, and often films don't, but this one really, and it's not, the, there's not one scene. It's a spirit that he has that, that carries through. Um, that reminds me every day, like get over yourself. You know, I feel like I'm getting old. I feel like my kids are, have left. I feel sorry for myself. Poor me. And I just think of Michael and I'm like, okay, yeah, I can do that. I can do that. So it's more of a, it's more of a spirit, a spirit thing. I think maybe his spirit. I just, I love the guy and I love you do your work. You work really hard. You love your work, but once in a while the work just changes you. And that's the best. I, mean, I know with your last film and your family and, and what you, I'm sure that making the film made your, your family richer and your relationships richer and, that's I think mom's that seen it like five hundred times. Your brother is nodding. So well, mom, mom has watched it. Mom watched it every night for a year, and then now she watches it a few times a week to spend time with dad. So it really, 
helped her a lot. Um, but then it helps a lot of people. It yeah. really does. It's one of those. Yeah. And I think your film is similar that way and that it's going to be really transformative for people to see it. And I just want to applaud you on that. Um, you've made something very special. You. Yeah. Um, and I think what's, what's really important also is that it is joyous yeah. and it is funny yeah. and it does ride that line. It's highly entertaining. Um, and you did such a great job with the, with the recreations as well. Thank you. Thank like you, you really hit period very beautifully and Thank you. yeah. So uh, some of that, some of that work in TV really paid off in this doc. Um, I knew at some point. <laughs> um, what's, what's coming up next for you? I'm out of work. If anyone knows any, <laughs> I really am. I'm looking. Isn't that great? Horrible, great feeling. Horrible, horrible feeling. Oh my God. I I'm useless. Yeah. So, so you're in the pandemic, you are depressed and you read something about Michael yeah. or you see something about Michael and it, you're like, gosh, you know what? That's amazing. And I'm going to, I'm going to approach Michael J. Fox. But what did he say? So he had a book, but it was, a, it was one of those things where it's a question answer. And, um, so he had just had a major surgery and was starting to walk better and Spike Lee hires him to have a bit part in one of his movies and he and his daughter fly back from Martha's Vineyard to their apartment. And the daughter says, uh, let me stay the night. I'll help you get ready in the morning so that you're, you, you, you get to work on time for Spike Lee. And he goes, no, 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 I'm, I'm, I'm good. She goes, she goes to her apartment. He wakes up. He's got his coffee mug. He swings around the kitchen island and he falls and shatters his arm. This is before this film. This is... And he's so injured that he can't reach the phone to call for help. So he doesn't show up for work. They shut down that production. For him, the pain of going to the emergency room and breaking his arm was, was no, nothing compared to not showing up at being, you know. Um, and um, what's extraordinary about it, and I'm looking at Nell because Nell's work, it helped... Nell Fortenberry uh, works with Michael J. Fox and and helped him write the book, right? Yes? Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, she's wonderful. And uh, um, someone said, well, you, you know, you're make this movie, you're going to have to work with this woman, Nell Fortenberry. I'm like, oh, I, I can't don't do know. that. No. That's going to be, that's going to be a nightmare. I don't, I don't, <laughs> I don't think I like her. And then of course I love her. Um, it was just a great, wonderful partnership. But anyway, I digress. The way he talked about that moment was not just painful and tragic, but it was also wise and found some wit. And so here I am in the middle of pandemic reading about that going, hmm, I kind of want that. Like I'm, I was, I'm drawn to that tone that he was writing towards. I was drawn to his point of view. And so then I got his books and I heard, and the, and I encourage you to listen to his books on tape. They're beautiful. They're beautifully written. And his voice is what you hear in here is so you know, clear. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's just so appealing and, and something not something joyous and funny. Yeah. I was, I had written one question for you about like the narration and how it was a different quality of voice than you were capturing in that interview. Yeah. And I was like, he, did he use AI? And then I, then you show him recording his book and I'm like, Oh, okay. It came from the book. It came from the recordings of the book. I got, 
sent a review this morning of this film. Uh-oh. And I read it. I was like, well, it's a, it's a poignant portrait of it. And it's like directed by Robin Swicord, the writer of Benjamin Button. It was an AI review. And I, if you read it, you go, oh. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> um, so, so, <laughs> it's coming, folks. It is. It's coming faster than we. But um, that's another Q and A. That's another Q and A. Sorry. Um, yeah, we really worried about this because one of his books, the most recent book, his quality of his voice is is not nearly as good as the book from maybe five years ago, ten years ago. Was what ten years ago? Oh, okay. And very different from his voice now. So, and we says, oh, no, this is going to be a problem. And then we just started intercutting and it wasn't, I mean, to me, it's not a problem. No, 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 no. It's just, it, it was good that I, I liked that you showed him recording yeah. and working with the voice coach yeah. because then I understood like yes. the mix of that. You mixed a lot of things and I think it was really effective. Um, we, I feel like we should have a reception because clearly, you know, at least 80% of this theater. Yeah. And I know the other people, 20%, people like just, we should have a party outside. They were just compelled to come. They didn't want to come. <laughs> yeah. You are a good recruiter. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, thank you for making this great film. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Andy. Yeah. This is, this is, thank you. you're wonderful. Thank you all for coming. Congratulations. Thanks for listening to another DGA Q&A. The Director's Cut is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And please share, subscribe, rate, and review. We'd love to hear your feedback, and you can help fellow film buffs find the show. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is produced by the Directors Guild of America 